matter of life and death. Gospel of John, chapter 3. Not only was Benjamin Franklin a great statesman and inventor, but he was also a great correspondent, and he received letters from famous people from all over the world. One day he received what could well have been the most important letter ever to come to his his desk. It was from the well-known British preacher George Whitfield. He said, I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world, Whitmore wrote. As you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important, interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your pains. The new birth is one of the key topics in John chapter 3. In addition, in this chapter, we see Jesus Christ in three different roles. He's the teacher, he's the bridegroom, and he's the witness. Jesus Christ, the teacher, in verses 1 through 21. We've already noted that the connection between John 2, 23 through 25 and and John 3 through 1. Nicodemus was initially attracted to Jesus because of the miracles that he did. He wanted to know more about Jesus and, and the doctrines that he taught. Nicodemus himself was the teacher of the Jews. See John 3, 10. And he had great respect for the teacher from Galilee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which meant he lived by the strictest possible religious rules. Not all of the Pharisees were hypocrites. As one may infer from Jesus' comments recorded in Matthew 23, and evidence indicates that Nicodemus was deeply sincere in his quest for the truth. He came to Jesus by night, not because he was afraid of being seen, but most likely because he wanted to have a quiet, uninterrupted conversation with the new teacher come from God. The fact that Nicodemus used the plural pronoun we and Jesus responded with the plural ye in John 3 verse 7 might indicate that Nicodemus was representing the religious leaders. He was a man of high moral character, deep religious hunger, and yet profound spiritual blindness. In order to instruct Nicodemus in the basics of salvation, our Lord used four quite different illustrations. In verses 1 through 7, our Lord began with with that which was familiar, birth being a universal experience. The word translated again also means from above. Though all human beings have experienced natural birth on earth, if they expect to go to heaven, they must experience a supernatural, spiritual birth from above. And once again, we meet with the blindness of sinners. This well-educated religious leader, Nicodemus, did not understand what the Savior was talking about. 
Jesus was speaking about a spiritual birth, but Nicodemus thought only of a physical birth. The situation is no different today. When you talk with people about being born again, they often begin to discuss their family's religious heritage or their church membership or religious ceremonies and so on and so forth, or being a good person. Being being a, a patient teacher, though, our Lord picked up on Nicodemus's words and he, he further explained the new birth. To be born of water is to be born physically or enter a second time into his mother's womb. But to be born again means to be born of the Spirit. Oh, just as there are two parents for a physical birth, so there are two parents for a spiritual birth. The Spirit of God in John 3, 5, and the Word of God in James 1, 18. Also in 1 Peter, also in John 2 and 3. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and when the sinner believes, imparts the life of God. Jesus was not teaching that the new birth comes through water baptism. In the New Testament, baptism is connected with death, not birth. And no amount of physical water can affect a spiritual change in a person. The emphasis in John 3 uh, verses 4 through 21 is on believing because salvation comes through faith. The evidence of salvation is the witness of the Spirit within. See Romans 8 verse 9. And the Spirit enters your life when you believe. Acts 10 and also see Ephesians chapter 1. Water baptism is certainly a part of our obedience to Christ and our witness for Christ. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 and Acts 2, verse 41. But it must not be made an essential for salvation. Otherwise, none of the Old Testament saints was ever saved. Nor was the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 39-43. In every age there has been but one way of salvation, faith in God's promise. Through the outward evidence of that faith has changed, it has changed from age to age. Human birth involves travail as it says in John 16:21 and so does the birth from above so our savior had to travail on the cross so that we might become members of the family of God Isaiah 53 verse 11 concerned believers have to travail in prayer and witness as they seek to lead sinners to Christ 1 Corinthians 4:15 Galatians 4.19 The child inherits the nature of the parents, and so does the child of God. We become, quote, partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 and 4 Nature determines appetite, which explains why the Christian has an appetite for the things of God. 
He has no desire to go back to the foul things of the world that once appealed to him. There's no more desire left for that. He feeds on the word of God and grows into spiritual maturity. See Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Of course, birth involves life. And spiritual birth from above involves God's life. John uses the word life 36 times in his gospel. The opposite of life is death. And the person who has not believed on Jesus Christ does not have God's life, eternal life, nor abundant life. You do not manufacture Christians any more than you manufacture babies. The only way to enter into God's family is through the new birth. John 1, verses 11 through 13. Birth involves a future, and we are quote, born again to a living hope. See 1 Peter 1 and 3. A newborn baby cannot be arrested because he or she has no past. When you are born again into God's family, your sins are forgiven and they're forgotten. And your future is bright with a living hope. Nicodemus must have had a surprise and yet bewildered look on his face, for the Lord had to say, You must not be surprised that I told you that all of you must be born again. John 3, verse 7. But Nicodemus was born a Jew. He was a part of God's covenant people. Romans 9, 4, and 5. Certainly his birth was better than that of a Gentile or a Samaritan. And his life was exemplary from, excuse me, for he was a faithful Pharisee. He could well understand Jesus telling the Romans that they had to be born again, but certainly not the Jews. And then in verses 8 through 13, it is likely that the, the evening wind was blowing just then, as Nicodemus and Jesus sat on the housetop conversing, the, the word wind in both Hebrew and Greek can also be translated spirit. One of the symbols of the Spirit of God in the Bible is the wind or breath. See Job 33 verse 4 and see John 20 verse 22 and Acts 2 verse 2. Like the wind, the spirit is invisible, but powerful. And you cannot explain or predict the movements of the wind. When Jesus used this symbol, Nicodemus should have readily remembered Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. The prophet saw a valley full of dead bones, but when he prophesied to the wind, the spirit came and gave the bones life. Again, it was the combination of the Spirit of God and the Word of God that gave life. The nation of Israel, including Nicodemus and his fellow council members, was dead and hopeless. But in spite of the morality and religion of the people, they needed the life of the Spirit. 
The new birth from above is a necessity. The Bible says you must be born again, but it is also a mystery. Everyone who is born of the Spirit is like the wind. You cannot fully explain or predict either the wind or the child of God. For that matter, human's birth, human birth is still a mystery. In spite of all that we know about anatomy and physiology, each new life is exciting and it's different. So here, Nicodemus came by night and he was still in the dark. He could not understand the new birth, even after Jesus had explained it to him. Our Lord stated clearly that Nicodemus' knowledge of the Old Testament should have given him the, the light that he needed, in, as in John 3.10. Alas, the teacher of the Jews knew the facts recorded in the scriptures, but he could not understand the truths. What was the problem? For one thing, the religious leaders would not submit to the authority of Christ's witness. See John 3:11. We will see this authority conflict increase as we continue in our studies. The religious leaders claimed to be uh, to believe Moses, yet they could not believe Jesus. John 5, John 5 verse 37 through 47. The Pharisees were more concerned about the praise of men than the praise of God. John 12, 37 through 50. Verses 14 and 18, or John 3, 12. I have used earthly illustrations, said Jesus, and you cannot understand. If I begin to share the deep spiritual truths, you still would not believe. John 3, verse 12. The serpent on the pole in verses 14 through 18. The story in Numbers 21, 4 through 9 was certainly familiar to Nicodemus. It is a story of sin, for the nation rebelled against God and had to be punished. God sent fiery serpents to that, that bit the people so that many of them died. It's also a story of grace, for Moses interceded for the people, and God provided a remedy. He told Moses to make a brass serpent and lift it up on a pole for all to see. Any stricken person who looked at that serpent would immediately be healed. So it is also a story of faith. When the people looked by faith, they were saved. The verb lifted up has a dual meaning here, to be crucified. John 8, 28. John 12, 32 through 34. And to be glorified and exalted. In his gospel, John points out that our Lord's crucifixion was actually the means of his glorification. The cross was not the end of his glory. It was the means of his glory. Acts 2, 33. Much as the serpent was lifted up on that pole, so the Son of God would be lifted up on a cross. 
why? To save us from sin and death. In the camp of Israel, the solution to the serpent problem was not in killing the serpents, making medicine, pretending they were not there, passing uh, anti-spirit laws, or climbing the pole. The answer, the answer was in looking by faith at the uplifted serpent. The whole world has been bitten by sin, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. God sent his son to die, not only for Israel, but for a whole world. How is a person born from above? How is he or she saved from eternal perishing? By believing on Jesus Christ, by looking to him in faith. Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He became the uplifted serpent. The serpent in Moses' day brought physical life to dying Jews. But Jesus Christ gives eternal life to anyone who trusts him. He has salvation for a whole world. Light and darkness in verses 19 through 21. This is one of the major images used in this gospel. John 1, uh, verse 4 through 13. Why will sinners not come? into the light of life because they love the darkness. They want to persist in their evil deeds and this keeps them from coming to the light. For the closer the sinner gets to the light, the more his sins are exposed. It's not intellectual problems that keep people from trusting Christ. It is the moral and it is also the spiritual blindness that keeps them loving the darkness and hating the light. Note here that Nicodemus finally did come to the light. He was in the, quote, midnight of confusion, John 3, verses 1 through 21. But eventually he came out into the sunlight of confession when he identified with Christ at Calvary. John 19, 38 through 42. He realized that the uplifted Savior was indeed the Son of God, Jesus the Bridegroom. In verses, in chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, The Bible says until John the Baptist was arrested by Herod and put into prison, his ministry overlapped that of the Lord Jesus. John did not want John did not want anyone to follow him. His ministry was to point others to the Lamb of God and urge people to trust in Jesus. But when two popular preachers are involved in 
similar work, it is easy for both friends and enemies to get caught up in competition and comparison. It appears that some of John's disciples started the argument. It began on doctrinal grounds, the matter of purifying, but soon moved to personal grounds in John 3.25. Some manuscripts read a Jew instead of the Jews. Could this unnamed Jew have possibly been Nicodemus? We cannot say, but it is a possibility. The matter of purifying was important to the Jews. See Mark 7, 1 through 23. Under the Old Testament law, it was necessary for them to keep themselves ceremonial, ceremonially clean if they were to serve God and please him. Unfortunately, the Pharisees added so many extra traditions to the law that the observing of it became a burden. Without realizing it, John's disciples were putting him into a situation of competing against the Lord Jesus. John 3:26, all men come to him. Sounds like a wail of despair. It is interesting to note that four of the greatest men in the Bible face this problem of of comparison and competition. And those four men were Moses, John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul. A leader often suffers more from his zealous disciples than from his critics. How did John the Baptist handle this controversy here? To begin with, he stated a conviction. All ministry and blessings come from God. So there can be no competition. Paul would have agreed with this. Our gifts and opportunities come from God, and he alone must get the glory. Then John used a beautiful illustration. He compared Jesus to the bridegroom, and he, and he, himself only to the best man. John 3 verse 29. Once the bridegroom and the bride had been brought together, the work of the best man was completed. What a foolish thing it would be for the best man to try to upstage the bridegroom and take his place. John's joy was to hear the voice of the bridegroom and know that he had claimed his bride. Even before his birth, John the Baptist rejoiced in the Lord. See Luke 1.44. John was content to be the voice announcing Jesus to be the word. Jesus was the light, and John the Baptist was the witness pointing to the light. Often press releases and book reviews cross my desk along with conference folders, and at times I'm perturbed by what I read. Very few speakers and writers are ordinary people. They are are world travelers or John, or excuse me, or noted lecturers who have addressed huge audiences. They are always in great demand and their ministries are described in such ways that they make the apostle Paul a midget by comparison. A Presbyterian pastor pastor in Melbourne, Australia, introduced J. Hudson Taylor by using many 
superlatives, especially the word great. Taylor stepped up to the pulpit and quietly said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. If John the Baptist in heaven heard that statement, he must have shouted hallelujah. The image of the bridegroom would have been significant to the Jewish people for Jehovah had a marriage covenant with the nation. Israel had been unfaithful to her vows and God had to put her away temporarily. Today, God is calling out a people for his name, the church, the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. One day the bride will come to claim his bride. The, excuse me, the bridegroom will come to claim his bride and take her to her home in heaven. Revelations 19, 6 through 9 and 21, verse 9. The word must be and is used in their three significant ways in this chapter. There is the must of the sinner. There is the must of the Savior. And there is the must of the servant. Jesus is the witness. Bible scholars do not agree as to who is speaking in John 3:31 through 36. John the Apostle or John the Baptist. For that matter, some students believe that John 3.16 through 21 came from the Apostle John and not the Lord Jesus. There were no quotation marks in early manuscripts, but since all scripture is inspired, it really makes a little difference. Who said the words? It makes a little difference. The emphasis in this paragraph is on witness or testimony, one of the key subjects in John's gospel. The Greek word translated witness or testimony is used 47 times. John bore witness to Jesus in John 1 verse 7, in John 5 verse 33. But Jesus was also a witness to the truth. Why should we heed his witness? For several reasons. He came from heaven. He was not simply called from heaven or empowered by heaven. He came from heaven. It was this claim that the Jews disputed because they knew it was his claim that he was God. John 6, 38 through 42. John the Baptist was not from above, nor did he claim to be. No earthly messenger of God came from above. Only Jesus Christ can make that claim and prove it to be true. Since Jesus came from heaven, he represents the Father, and to reject his witness is to reject the Father. See John 5.23. We know that his witness is true because he is the true God. We can trust it and we can rely on it. It comes from him firsthand. Verse 32 through 33. He shares what he has seen and heard from the Father, John 8, 38. 
Those who receive his witness and act on it know by personal experience that his witness is true. John 7, verse 17. Our Lord's teachings are not to be studied intellectually. Separated from everyday life, it is when we obey his word and put it into practice that we see its truth and experience its power. The Father has authorized his Son. In verses 34 and 35, God sent him. Another key theme in John's Gospel. God gave him the Word. God gave him the Spirit. God gave him all things. John 13, 3. What a commissioning. To reject the Son's witness is to rebel against the highest authority in the universe. We usually think of God's love for a lost world, John 3.16. But John reminds us of the Father's love for his Son. Jesus is the Father's beloved Son. Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, and Luke 3.22. Because the Father loves the Son, he has given him all things, and he shows him all things. It is a love that can hold nothing back. Therefore, when we receive his witness, we share in his love and his wealth. To reject Christ's witness is to sin against love and light. No wonder our Lord wept over the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. They had rejected his witness, both his messages and his miracles, and their rejection had Excuse me, their rejection led to judgment. We might escape the wrath of God, verse 36, and this is the only place in any of John's epistles or his gospel that he uses the word wrath. Yet, I will say in Revelations, he uses the word six times in the book of Revelations. This verse parallels John 3.18 and it makes it clear that there can be no neutrality when it comes to the witness of Jesus Christ. We either trust him or we reject him. Everlasting life does not simply mean eternity in heaven. The believer possesses that life right now. It is the life of God in the believer. The opposite of eternal life is eternal death the wrath of God. A person does not have to die and go to hell to be under the wrath of God. He that believeth not is condemned already. John 3.18 The verdict has already been given, but the sentence has not yet been executed. Because God is patient and long-suffering, and continues to call sinners to repentance. As in 2 Peter 3 and 9. As you review John 3, you can see that the Apostle John is emphasizing, emphasizing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a living relationship that begins with the new birth, the birth from above, and when we receive Jesus Christ into our lives, we share his very life and become children in the family of God. 
It is also a loving relationship for he is the bridegroom and we are a part of the bride. Like John the Baptist, we desire that Jesus Christ increase and we decrease. He must receive all the honor and glory. It is a learning relationship for he is the faithful witness who shares God's truth with us. What a delight it is to receive his word, to meditate on his word, and make it a part of our very lives. But we must never forget the cost of these blessings. For us to be born into God's family, Jesus Christ had to die. For us to enter into the loving relationship of salvation, he had to endure the hatred and condemnation of men. He had to be lifted up on the cross so that we might experience forgiveness and eternal life. In closing, in we'll, tomorrow I'll be going to the, chapter 4 in regard to the Samaritans, verses 1 through 54. And I would just like to say, may we never take this for granted that he must increase, but we must decrease. John chapter 3, verse 30.